welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen and welcome to A Bit of a Milestone. This is episode 50 of the Scottish Business Network podcast series and it's our two-year anniversary too. And to celebrate, this is a bit of a standout episode. To start with, regular listeners will have noticed a new theme tune. And this isn't something plucked from an online jingle library, but a piece of music composed and performed for us by Chris Tolley. Chris is a Scottish composer, and if you don't know his name, you've almost certainly heard his music on TV or in films. He also has a great career story and will be featuring in an episode very soon. But we also have someone very special for this episode. The word inspirational is overused, but I think it truly applies to Poonam Malik. In 1999, Poonam arrived in Scotland from India with two suitcases, £35, and a British Council scholarship to Glasgow University. 21 years on, she is an extraordinarily well-connected scientist, academic, businesswoman, investor, consultant, mentor, and a passionate advocate for social enterprise and encouraging diversity amongst business startups and senior management. And all this carried with a grounded sense of humility and a great sense of humour. My interview with Poonam begins in 45 seconds, but first a word on behalf of our partners, A1 SEO, who help businesses win more traffic from online search. Traffic arriving from search engines is much more likely to convert than traffic from other channels as you're being visited by people at the very moment they're searching for the products or services you offer. And Graham Grieve, the founder of A1 SEO, is now offering listeners to this podcast a free, personalised 15-minute mini-audit of your website. Simply drop him an email at graham at a1seo.digital with your website's URL and a couple of keywords that you want your business to be associated with. Poonam Malik, lovely to speak to you. Where, Where do we find you today? Thank you, Fraser, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me, and lovely to speak to you. So I am sitting uh, in Dalgati Bay, looking over the lovely fourth and the fourth road uh, and the three bridges. <laughs> well, it's a, a beautiful September afternoon, so I imagine the, the view's pretty impressive. It's spectacular. I'm, I'm quite quite jealous because I can't <laughs> see anything from my little office in here, <laughs> apart from a bit of sky through the skylight. But um, you know the, where you are now is is, is uh, a world away from from where you grew up, Poonam. You, you grew up in India, and I, I wonder if we could start by sort of discovering how you reflect upon that time. Now, what did the young Poonam dream of doing with her life, and how did your upbringing shape you? And and what qualities also do you think you inherited from your parents? So a whole load of questions there. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, wow, that's a journey. You're sort of uh, of a lifetime. You're asking me to go back, but I suppose <laughs> we are product of uh, our upbringing and childhood. So absolutely, uh, reflecting on those time with very fond memories. So I grew up in. I was born in a very small village in uh, northern India in a state called Uttar Pradesh, uh, Mathura, which is the birthplace of Lord Krishna. If anyone knows of Hindu mythology, so just where uh, the, one of the famous gods was born, and um, my uh, so my. Yeah, mom and dad, uh, two brothers, I'm the middle one, uh, both sides of me. And my dad uh, was earlier in Air Force, but then he was railways when I was born. And my mom is a homemaker. 
And I, uh, because my mom was always homemaker, I think she had this uh, uh, motivation for me to do something different with her life and go out and work. So I think she was the this huge uh, influence and impact on my life. And uh, coming from an Indian um a society where uh, education levels generally are not considered high, and especially among the girls and, and in villages. So, um, I yes, uh, for me, I think my family support and the surrounding of extended family was huge, and that has made a huge impact on shaped me what I am. I left home again at my mum's behest at age young age of eight to go and study oh, at my wow. uncle's place, and I really only saw my family in summer holidays when two months used All to right. come and so yeah actually I've never uh, I left very early and since then it's been just summer holiday but uh, that did shape me and uh, even uh, coming up to Glasgow I think uh, they supported me all the way through because um, when I landed in UK uh, I suppose one of the biggest thing in Indian society is a timely marriage of girls and I wasn't very young at <laughs> time and right. people were thinking why should I uh, move to another country when it was the right time to start a family life but yeah right. my father supported that wow that's great so you a lot of support and also you must have had felt reasonably independent at moving away from the family home so young because it, in 1999 as you say you arrived in in glasgow to study molecular virology and biomedical sciences so why glasgow and, and how did you find the transition from india to scotland Independence, certainly, What if you move out of the house at an early stage, and as I said, I my first degree and master's degree, I did it in India and stayed in boarding. So that certainly did give me a lot of independence. I had my mind uh, quite early on. I wanted to do uh, something with it, and I wanted to have these big dreams of wanted to contribute to something big in the world. And uh, I was studying, I did my uh, master's, uh, undergrad in the city where Taj Mahal is, so Agra, and then moved to a premier Indian veterinary research institute to do my master's in biotechnology. And I was offered a Commonwealth scholarship uh, from the uh, Commonwealth Scholarship Commission UK to study in the United Kingdom. And uh, as a result, I had the choice of universities any way I could choose. And uh, I chose Glasgow because Glasgow Virology Grouping at that time, which is Medical Research Council at the University of Glasgow, is the best and the largest in the world. So obviously for training in the research for a PhD, nothing but the best. Although I did have a lot of, uh, <laughs> I would say, opposition and making fun from my colleagues who were saying, why have you put Oxford or Cambridge at second and third place and going <laughs> far up in the north when it's cold and dark all the time? But I think <laughs> I had my eyes set up and I have never regretted. And in fact, it has given me the life that I am. So here uh, I landed in Glasgow. And the transition, I would say, interesting, very because uh, I did know know a single soul in the UK when I came, got off that plane, although I did mm. have the uh, fellowship awarded from the Commonwealth Commission, so British uh, Council arranged my transition. But yes, interestingly, I landed with two state cases and £35 <laughs> in my pocket, which £18 oh, yeah. pounds went to the taxi. <laughs> so <laughs> my first weekend, I did manage with £17, uh, and the first wow. till I got my uh, first uh, scholarship. Uh, but it was an interesting time, very warm people, although 
coming from India, where English wasn't even my first language, understanding Glaswegian and the uh, people in the supermarkets and uh, <laughs> did take some interesting times. <laughs> I, I think a lot of other people in the UK might share that same problem. Um, but that's uh, what an amazing ad- adventure, and I mean, it's it's extraordinary, really. And because you then you've you've moved into a, a series of well, after that you moved into a series of, of research and higher education teaching posts before moving into business, and you have got an extraordinary CV. I mean, it spans science, research, teaching, enterprise, investment, and your LinkedIn profile, uh, as far as I could work out, lists twenty five career roles to date. So I'm intrigued. When you meet someone socially, Poonam, and they say, what do you do? How do you answer them? <laughs> Master of <laughs> none and jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> uh, no, I think you are right. Uh, my interests are wide and very diverse. So I did enjoy uh, studies. And as a result, I was one of the unusual ones, girl who took sciences and STEM subjects, even at my uh, sort of school, college and university level. And I wanted to do research in virology as as we just uh, discussed. So initially, um, I did my PhD. And uh, as happened, uh, PhD was a success. I did publish uh, three first author papers. And my professor was uh, very um, uh, impressed. And he immediately offered me a job as an extension in in the university. And in fact, um, I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to my first uh, professor and uh, supervisor. I think he is still my all-time top three mentors in my career journey, which is very impressive. And it was a very uh, sad time when I lost him in 2005 as a result because he committed suicide due to mental oh. health depression. So right. I think that did take a quite a long toll. I could mm. never look back on Glasgow and university in the same light but at the same time i had already secured the royal society uh, uk uh, independent fellowship so with that uh, after his death i moved to edinburgh university and my uh, conducted in the independent research in virology for the first four or five years Uh, but as it happens during that time i did realize a gap uh, in the uh, commercialization and knowledge translation because my research was always very adaptive and uh, more uh, practical use of it uh, in translational research and that's when I became more and more interested and realized that between the scientists and people who work in the universities and labs and business world where we are uh, trying to uh, provide solutions um, Mm. there is a cultural gap there's an understanding and language gap and uh, despite all the efforts uh, I think that still remains to some extent so as a result then moved into business and since then I have uh, worked uh, in between and that um, space of between mm. business and academia and uh, hoping to continue that uh, commercialization. So you're, you're bridging that gap and perhaps there's even a touch of the polymath about you. <laughs> um, and and we, we, what we're going to do actually is is rather than sort of go, go through sort of role by role, is going to pick out some of the key themes of your career so far. So let's start with virology because that's how your, your career began anyway. And you're Early research work is obviously highly relevant to what we're going through now with COVID-19. And I believe it's a topic that you've been asked to speak about in in recent months. So what are your thoughts about the pandemic crisis and the the continuing health threat and also how it's been managed? 
Um, I think you're absolutely right uh, that after uh, sort of, I think I stopped my uh, bench research and something about once I was running group, you get further away and it's been uh, 10 years of hands-on research, but it has brought me back to my very best subject level of uh, virology because I did work both on the ribonucleic acid viruses, which is what the uh, coronavirus, uh, this COVID-19 is, and the DNA viruses, herpes viruses have been my predominant research and in this uh, the pandemic obviously is uh, that has taken the world by surprise like no other as we say this is one of the uh, biggest challenges that humanity has ever seen either from the great depression or even world war and it has shut down the world practically to stand still but actually, if you look at uh, the uh, global health impact side of it, uh, pandemics are not new. They do happen. And um, in some cases, uh, like Ebola virus that was happening in Africa or um, the swine fever or uh, MERS that happened in Middle East, uh, they happened at a smaller scale and they remained confined to small. So world uh, did not experience at this level. In this case, what happened is that it was one uh, virus which was... Um, not present in humans, jumped species from animals to humans, which we call zoonotic. And we are still learning about the viruses. And the the the, the and not interesting thing, but the surprising thing was the speed with which it happened. And right. actually, we shouldn't be surprised at it because compared to the previous times when such outbreaks have happened, the human and uh, the other five uh, forms of migration were not that quick. So as a result, what it brings home the message that our health is very, very interconnected. So instead of us thinking at our local boundaries, regional boundaries, or even national boundaries, well, now we need to think about uh, uh, health in global terms. What we do in Melbourne or what we happens in China or New York or even New Delhi can very mm. easily within the 24, 48 hours affect us simply because mm. the, as we are, the world is very interconnected place as the digital uh, lockdown has seen that we are connected digitally, but more than that, we are still connected physically as much. So we need to uh, look at the policies and practices and different countries have adopted different uh, policies and some have worked, but then again, we are, uh, some leaders have been praised for for managing it well while there have been questions. But we also need to take into account the size of the country, the population, and the global health uh, infrastructure that have, because some of the mighty countries who are very rich still have not been able to contain the virus simply mm. because uh, their community level systems might be very different. Whereas some of the larger population countries like India, where there is uh, like 1.6 billion people, if they are living in there, if the same death rate would have continued, we would have seen a massive death rate. But because mm. of the, um, the TB, tuberculosis or HIV, the community level experience uh, kicked in and people have been tracking and tracing that to much greater extent. So times are tough. The virus is not going away till a drug or a vaccine become available. We just need to learn to manage with it and human beings need to be sensible around the advice that's been given and following that. And, and, and on a related issue, I mean, change and risk management are 
a big interest of yours and key issues for many organisations now looking to reinvent themselves in the wake of COVID-19. Is there any advice you can offer businesses struggling with that change process? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, no organization has remained untouched by what has happened and uh, everybody has uh, needed to uh, turn uh, themselves uh, around upside down. Some are better at it and have adopted quickly and some still struggle. The basic structure sometimes like agility of decision making, communication of leadership and how uh, clunky the processes are. Those are the few factors that can change various organization. But I think uh, in managing something like this, something like COVID, which is unexpected and unknown, unknown, literally, as you would call it, it is, uh, we need to be able to learn uh, a lot more from the high reliability organization. And if we, if we go into the basics of it, basically, it's learning from the failures, because Something like this somewhere has happened before, but the organizations that work better at it are the ones that learn from previous failures and simplify uh, what went wrong, operationalize it and develop that resilience and also uh, take uh, away with the expertise. So what we need to do is in, in any organization, uh, looking back at how quickly they were able to communicate to the people most organizations that I work with and even uh, we have seen the digital transformation that has happened in the first, literally first uh, four weeks of lockdown. Uh, people are uh, even uh, saying various things like 15 years of digital transformation, even our own NHS, we have seen two years worth of digital transformation in just three weeks of it. So organizations are able to adapt. Sometimes our regulatory barriers or slow speed of decision making or uh, sort of too many hierarchical positions uh, make that change uh, of pace quite slow. And that is what we need to learn the good practices that we have now developed during these things, manage those, keep those, and not throw away after we pass through this phase. The interview with Poonam continues in a few seconds after this very short promotion. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling, or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E, and comms with two M's. Poonam, you, you, as we've already mentioned, you arrived in Scotland as a young woman from India, and you forged a, a very successful career here. I know that encouraging diversity in business is very close to your heart. So how much has that sprung from your own experiences and how are you helping to push the case for diversity? Um, and also, I'm wondering, what would we, how would you encourage other influencers and business owners to do this as well? <laughs> I think that's an interesting point. As I said, arriving as a young woman standing at uh, Glasgow Airport with my suitcases, I I won't I wasn't able to see many people like me. But when I landed in the lab and did my PhD, I think I still look back. I was the only uh, I would say Indian or brown face there, and that uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know if there is anything fortunate about it. Uh, not change very much because in a, whichever uh, organization I have gone in, I don't see very many pe 
people similar looking. Initially, because I just uh, waged my through and did uh, had the single-minded thing, I wanted to do what I wanted to do and uh, formed friendships and relationships, didn't notice that change. And slowly, because nobody was talking about it, so suddenly I didn't to sort of think anything different but uh, society has now started to talk about uh, diversity equality and diversity and inclusion and more and more and while I was trying to work with people and support and sometimes as you say you are the um, means being a short woman also doesn't help and means even if I was wearing probably four inches or seven inches heels I could look at some of my male colleagues and look them in the eye but I always had to lift and look up to people <laughs> literally unless I bring a stool with me so and it's it's and sometimes in big rooms uh, people I mean people can look over you and uh, you just need to wait for your opportunity and when you speak if you have something sensible to contribute people do take pause and say mm, there is something here and then they start to listen to you and mm. then you uh, get noticed and uh, I think that so that's from the side of people who are being feeling that they are not being noticed it's just uh, contribute when you have something sensible to contribute and you will get noticed is the advice for them but there is a large responsibility on the side of society and the employers and the organizations to do how we are making the how representative we are of the society and how uh, diverse and uh, and inclusive we are so for that i think me being in science and uh, the organization in the universities there is a uh, Athena Swan uh, as an initiative. So when I went to an English university in England, when they were member, made member, and I was chairing the committee uh, to apply for that, so progress the women of uh, in academia in science and STEM. But when I moved to uh, look at the business side of the things, the situation isn't any better here. We obviously, if you look at the boardroom mm-hmm. reality, um, it's there are hardly any women um, in terms of at the leadership level or at the board level. So from that point of view, I work with an organization, a wonderful organization by Tanya Castle in changing the chemistry where we work around boardroom diversity and I speak on that with on Equate Scotland or uh, public appointments team. But in the business side of for the founders, I it's uh, it's it's a, a sort of traversity that only one percent of venture capital funding seems to go towards the founders, and that is simply um, uh, unacceptable. So I do work with Investing Women Angels, which we're gonna gonna get onto next. So you, you, you're helping women entrepreneurs become more successful at getting in investors on board so what, what are the specific problems you think women face in these situations <laughs> well where do i start <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously as we say uh, scotland is full of talent and promise and wonderful ideas and uh, nature has given us uh, this uh, capa- wonderful capacity of 50 percent women and 50 percent men and i think uh, to some extent schooling up to first level of university we do see women do but then where do they disappear where do they go why do we not see them why is the pyramid like upside means 
it's like literally uh, less than one percent women in the management senior management position or similarly in the as i said just now the rose review from uh, alison rose ceo of rbs natwest mm-hmm. highlighted this very issue that uh, while women are bringing up the ideas they are not getting funding there is less than one percent funding going by the venture capital groups funds going to them so that they face these challenges that they are not able to scale up their ideas and as a person who has worked in the businesses with startup uh, community that i see over uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of more than 150 organize uh, startup organization each year going through our ranks you realize uh, that unless uh, the businesses get funding support at the right time it's not going to grow and what happens is that one uh, it's a two ended problem one the women founders they are not able to see many other women like that mm-hmm. and as a result when they enter the um, sort of investors room whether it's angel investors or vc funds um they are not able to see anybody across the table and they are have very few role models to look up to in the case of successful right. female founders as well and from the other end because on the funder side whether they are the angel investors or the venture capital groups it's t- typically male dominated field uh, most of them i would say <coughs> is um over 95% tend to be uh, male um funders and as a result sometimes uh, the way biological differences and how women are expressed or how their business model they are proposing or how uh, it's women do tend to be a bit more um conscious with the money they are. there is enough research that they can make their run longer and achieve the targets but because that doesn't look ex- uh, ambitious enough uh, they get turned down and not uh, invested in so i think we need to tackle the both problems and as it is this is why i uh, joined um, sort of i met uh, jackie winning in 2015 and we hit it off and since then because i was working with businesses and was seeing more of these problems so i joined then and i'm very active in times of working with them from the not only just with the funding but preparing them for the funding with the boot camps working with a mentoring and advising and putting them in front of other groups we work in syndication with all the other investor groups in Scotland here and uh, the research from US obviously data is available they are ahead of us there is clear correlation that if there are more uh, women uh, in angel investors and uh, vc fund uh, funders they tend to there is increasingly correlation between women founders getting funding and then growing so uh, th- that's the uh, level and then also trying to uh, outline and uh, develop um, those women founders giving them um, that uh, preparation so the very either to boot camps or directly working with them as non exec on their business and advisory because a young person starting who hasn't haven't seen anything like this or mm. not have many people to go to where they could express or ask those questions uh, sometimes uh, playbooks puts them at the back foot now you also have a, a big interest in social enterprise uh, so i've got another multi-layered question for you here you're a, <laughs> really really pushing you here so you're an executive director of an organization called first impact so i wonder if you could explain what that's about but also what are some of the challenges facing social entrepreneurs and have these been exacerbated by the pandemic crisis 
Oh, absolutely. I think social enterprise as with uh, somebody who wants to work with businesses with purpose and and try to create an impact and effect um, um, on the society, on the people. I think social enterprises are a wonderful example because they are a class of uh, they are businesses which are which have to have great business. But what they want to do is they want to put their profits back into the society. So if you see what I mean is that that you can put back something into the society in terms of from your profit if you make the profit in the first instance. So they are slightly different in that, that they need to be run like good businesses, which is why we need good founders, good business idea and good support set up behind them. So yes, you said I'm um, um, tr- non-exec director and a trustee for First Impact, uh, where uh, we have a very active and uh, able CEO, Josiah Lockhart, and I w- enjoy working with them uh, because uh, we have we see roughly over 1,100 social enterprises uh, inquiries through our doors annually. And uh, in that, uh, there are it's a government-supported uh, funding for various levels of program. And one of the very exciting one is the Launch Me Accelerator, where we try to work innovative ideas from social enterprise entrepreneurs with the private funding. But what challenges you are talking about in this is that the ideas are good. And now uh, there is a lack of digitalization and data adoption in social entrepreneurship. The reason being is that third sector in general uh, needs a lot more uh, support in terms of their uh, digital capability and uh, tools that can bring them into development. But while the private funders or uh, angel money or VC money goes into the businesses with uh, the limited businesses or the commercial businesses, social enterprise uh, suffer from that because they cannot offer equity. There is a locked asset system there. So as a result, that becomes a challenging if there is no immediate return on investment. So there is a, a scheme called SITR, uh, which is social investment return on the basis of tax. But that turned out to be not very successful. So what in the social investment space we need is uh, whether it's the government tax uh, scheme, because government does have a great role to play, in there, but even for the private investors, which some time ago we used to call corporate social responsibility, now big funds and pension funds and big organizations need to look at it, say how they are going to change the world and have that impact. So for that, if they start to develop specifically somewhere, some funds which are supporting these asset-locked organizations, then certainly uh, because that is the only way uh, the society will be impacted by these wonderful ideas. And Scott Scotland is actually world leading in terms of social enterprises that are formed here. And the challenges that are currently we have seen in terms of COVID-19, right from uh, old age um, people or uh, inequality or poverty or even educational gap and digital inequality gap in regional different regions. These can be tackled by these wonderful social enterprises. We need to have uh, the right leadership support as well as the right funding support for the sector. Now, apart from First Impact, um, 
I'm going to mention now just a few of your current business commitments. I'm going to have to take a deep breath before I start because there's <laughs> so many of them. So you're a board member of Scottish Enterprise and Skills Development Scotland. You're involved with the University of Highlands and Islands and the Royal Society. You're a director of the World Health Innovation Summit. You're a board advisor to Wallet Services, which is a blockchain technology company. I could go on. And those are just some. So those are just some of your current responsibilities. Poonam, what do you enjoy about having such a broad portfolio and is it difficult to manage? <laughs> uh, so apology for that long uh, reading, but I think <laughs> as you can see from that, uh, that I enjoy a range of um, interests, something where I think I can contribute to. And in each one of them, there is, a, I think there is a method in the chaos, if you would uh, <laughs> mind me saying that, because I choose the organizations that I want to work with based on if I'm what I'm able to offer and what I'm able to enjoy working towards. I can get up in the morning and feel excited about contributing. So, yes, uh, in terms of um, social, I mean, in terms of Scottish enterprise, as you will say, uh, very crucial in the current uh, COVID-19 crisis alone, we have managed uh, three uh, funds, uh, sort of in terms of hardship funds, pivotal fund, and even the recent early stage company challenge fund, which is still going on. So the organization plays a huge role in terms of uh, early stage entrepreneur support, uh, financial readiness, high growth programs, and even at the international connection, because that's very important for me having that international exposure in the global community, working uh, with the businesses, because as I have that cultural understanding of diverse uh, cultures and um, even awareness of the marketplace. So Scottish Development International, which is uh, Scottish Enterprises International Arm, I think we ought to look, if we Scotland, have, we ought to make our place in the world. So we need to have a greater export and a more uh, in attract more for foreign direct investment and having that global and international outlook. I think I am coming from the place where I think based on the experience, uh, expertise and the the evidence that uh, knowledge of the different markets uh, I want to contribute. So from that point of view, I think it is really important that we put the right strategy uh, in place and advise correctly and take responsibility for our own actions. Uh, similarly, from the skills development, uh, Scotland, this is a crucial time in our young people's uh, development as well, because especially it was digital transition in the world, the space of uh, or the pace of the transition and transformation that's happening is exponential. But what COVID, as we just discussed, has shown that it has, it, to some extent, it has brought a lot of organization and geographic region on a level playing field because people can connect it and they don't need to travel. But at the same time, it has also brought inequalities uh, to light because we are uh, we need to be able to uh, connect uh, various places and provide them basic broadband accesses and make sure our young people don't suffer as a result of what has happened. So uh, there, uh, with the digital transformation and skills agenda for the future of work, and, and that is a, and being an academic and the research-driven evidence that I bring to, that's very important to bring to the businesses and I'm uh, very excited uh, that the current uh, 
focus is on uh, bringing a lot more technology enabled businesses whether they deal with the healthcare and uh, societal challenges but also to the climate change agenda because this is how we will grow and in terms of uh, university of highlands and islands and royal society uh, that is utilizing uh, providing the policy advice as well as working to the regions where uh, there is in terms of which is very suitable to the highland and island region but there is a, a different offering for that and uh, so i think I, i enjoy the diversity of roles and uh, each day could be different and but it keeps your mind active and i would say yes i am a, a sucker for knowledge so i dive into things and just soak in and contribute and that also gives you interaction with wonderful businesses and wonderful people to work with Yeah, indeed. You must must be very, must have a very interesting and, and diverse network of contacts. And um, you've got so much on your hands at the moment. But are there any fresh challenges that, in the back of your mind, you'd like to get stuck into in the next five years or so? Absolutely. I think uh, in my uh, book of uh, sort of, if I were to write an autobiography, that if you stop, you probably your mind stops working. And there is research evidence to mm. say that if you need to, keep, if you keep your mind active and uh, agile and uh, challenged, uh, you live longer. So I'm, I'm sure we are all as a, we are all living longer and longer. And bringing that is that I think my. Um, while i'm contributing in an various capacities uh, i still think i have a lot more left in me and i'm looking to take on a challenge in an executive capacity in some of the biggest challenges that the world is facing today so in terms of health which is my own background uh, healthy aging population and coming to uh, sort of some of the cures for any challenges in that is one and the other area is technology adoption to improve the quality of life either on people and planet in some way uh, whether that's the climate change or uh, working towards the develop- development of some of the diagnostics and drugs for improving the society i would love to uh, contribute to one of those well we will keep a, a keen eye on what on the next next chapter of your as as yet unwritten autobiography <laughs> Uh, but maybe you should you should write that sometime. Um, so, as we say, you're down in Dalgetty Bay, looking over the Firth of Forth, um, away from all of these huge uh, interests and, and commitments. What is family life like, and and how would you describe your perfect weekend? Oh, I think yeah, that's uh, I I would say that when I moved from uh, Glasgow, my husband got a job in Kakodi, so he's a respiratory pediatric consultant, which is uh, buried up to his neck in the COVID times as mm. well, uh, because so he's right in the middle of it, but. Uh, and we moved with that and then i was commuting from here to edinburgh university at that time and since then uh, just uh, it's right place to come here, go when we were traveling i suppose glasgow edinburgh or mm. uh, dundee or aberdeen it is uh, very well connected but it's a beautiful place um, because we just live next to the fourth it's our next street and um, i've got two wonderful kids uh, although being a single mom with no family support i think i <laughs> couldn't Uh, there is a large age gap between them so 17 and 8 or right. just uh, nine this last week so uh, yeah so i think they they are uh, they give me immense joy and um, uh, in terms of uh, we 
during lockdown, that's what it was. Obviously, the normality was that uh, pediatric uh, respiratory consultant husband was going to work, but we were working from home and then going for the walks by the Fourth River and uh, uh, the community around surrounding us. Mm, although uh, that it's not very diverse, but I think it's very warm and friendly, so we don't uh, notice uh, the any uh, lack of diversity here. But it's it's perfect weekend is uh, yeah uh, sitting in the garden looking that and listening to both my kids are very active. So before we shut down, I was almost a taxi driver on the weekends taking mm. them to their activities either cricket, badminton, or hockey. Uh, so and right. I think uh, precisely. Um, besides my parents who are responsible for I am today, I think my husband is behind everything uh, that I'm able to do and achieve my, uh, everything else. <laughs> I know from Twitter as well that you, you, you're pretty dab hand at knocking up a biryani at the weekend as well. <laughs> that was the son's birthday I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you're better than, than me, that's for sure. I burnt my onions on Sunday. It was, it was all a bit you of a disaster. You need to come to me for the tips next time. <laughs> yeah, I will do. Yeah. So talking of tips, uh, if you could give one piece of advice to the young Poonam heading off to Glasgow all those years ago, what would it be? Um, I think I don't have any regrets in looking back on anything. And I've enjoyed every year of my life that I can look back. But I would still say to the person who was landing in Glasgow, although I think looking back, I was very brave and uh, just didn't care. But yeah, have fun and conquer. And uh, one advice to any young person, me or anybody, is don't look for approval. If people don't appreciate, just go and make your own destiny. And I think that's what all these startup founders are doing in today's times. Great advice. And we're going to finish now, as has become traditional, with five quick-fire questions. So, are you ready? <laughs> okay, fire on. <laughs> what did you have for breakfast? Oh, nut and maple granola. That's my favourite breakfast. Oh, yeah, I had granola as well, actually. <laughs> Excellent choice. Um, what's the last book you read? Actually, it is very apt. Uh, you wouldn't believe it, but I was reading Managing the Unexpected. It is sust about sustaining performance in a complex world by Carl Hick right. and Kathleen Sutcliffe. And who would have uh, known that we would be right in the middle of an unexpected, <laughs> chaotic um, pandemic? They're probably selling quite a few copies of that. Um, best holiday you've been on? I think that's a tricky question. I've enjoyed, if I look back, I've enjoyed every holiday that I have been for various different reasons with different people, whether it's the family outing or the girls outing. But if I were to just say very recently, after six months of lockdown, when we were allowed out and travel, allowed to travel in Scotland, I think for my uh, son's birthday, we just went most recently in the last two weeks. Once just last weekend in Dumfries in a 17th century bar scoop castle with family and our family. Another wow. one came from London and Oxford. And it was amazing to, after six months, to see people yeah. and uh, spend time together. So, yeah, it's very memorable. Great. Scotland, definitely. <laughs> and who is your hero? Well, I uh, think I have, as I said, uh, I, again, it will be, 
difficult to pick one on because there are different people who I have looked up to. And I would say, yes, my mother definitely will be up there because of her tireless and selfless nature. But professionally, if I were to look back, I think I have always admired what Marie Curie has done, like two Nobel Prize winning in two different subjects, that to being a female in early 19th century and in physics and chemistry, and then raising a daughter after her husband died, who won the Nobel Prize too, means what else would you require in terms of a resilience and a brilliant scientist and some somebody who worked uh, with radium to improve the health of the people in the World War. So yes, Marie Curie. Marie Curie. And finally, what is your favorite place in the world? Okay, favorite place. Again, I... I mean, I do like traveling, but I'm travel sick, so I don't like the journey. Once I reach there, I enjoy it. But I think something that fills my heart and mind with wonderful memories is my home first, my birthplace, Mathura in India, because that's where my mom and dad and family childhood memories are. And now home, Dalgati Bay, where I feel uh, very happy coming back to from my days obviously we are not traveling now but otherwise i feel very content and hence despite all the hustle bustle and busy week life it is punam malik it has been a great pleasure to to speak to you so many insights very thought-provoking thank you very much for your time thank you fraser it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for uh, giving me the yeah, those <laughs> quick fire questions <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Poonam as much as I did. Thanks for listening and we'll be back again in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.